Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, one of Russia's most acclaimed artistic figures has been released from house arrest this week. But Kirill Serebrenikov has yet to be cleared of embezzlement charges his supporters say are politically motivated. Once it comes to sentencing, we'll be back where we were. It's The, the Russian legal system is very clear. Less than 0.1% of all cases which reach courts end up in non-guilty verdicts. We'll speak to Oliver Carroll, the Moscow correspondent for The Independent, who's been following the case. And later... Libya is on the brink of civil war. A Russian-backed warlord who controls swaths of the oil-rich country has announced a campaign to take the capital, Tripoli. You know, Russian policy uh, vis-a-vis different parties is, I would use this phrase by George Orwell, who said in his animal farm, you know, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. We'll speak with Max Suchkov, an expert at Russia's International Affairs Council, which was set up by the Kremlin to understand what Russia wants in Libya. First up, Russia's artistic community was shocked in August 2017 when one of its most prominent members, film and theatre director Kirill Serebrenikov, was detained on embezzlement charges. In what's being described as a major victory, he was released from house arrest this week. An audience erupted in applause when he took to the stage after a performance of his production of Dead Souls this week. But the charges against him, what's being described as political theatre by his allies, is not over yet. Joining us on the line to explain what comes next is Oliver Carroll, Moscow correspondent for The Independent. Ollie, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolute pleasure. So... Why now? I mean, Kirill Sarevnikov has been under house arrest since, well, around August 2017. Why do you think the judge has allowed him to be freed now? Um, well, I think you're starting from the wrong premise. Premise. Why has the judge allowed him to be freed? This is this is obviously not a decision which has been made in the courtrooms. Um, this is a decision which has been made in the administration uh, in the Kremlin. And it's happened um, as a result of, as far as I see it, a sort of competing uh set of bureaucracies. Um, now, we know that the elite is far from united on the affair. Um, when uh, Sidemnikov put on his Nuriyev in the Bolshoi, it was last year, it was 2017, uh, first of all, you had the very strange uh, sp- sp- spectacle of uh, two quite important and close people to Putin, Alexei Kudin, the former finance minister and Dmitry Peskov, his, his his secretary, being in the actual audience and obviously quite demonstrably showing that they weren't necessarily in agreement with the, the case which had been brought against Serebnikov. Um, Putin himself, we don't really know where he stands at the start. He said, you know, these these guys are fools, the investigators uh, conducting the, the investigation. But later, he sort of stepped back a little bit from those comments. Um, suggesting that economic crimes might have been involved and so on. So, I, I mean, I don't think you can see this, as some people have, have, have um, you know, uh, suggested this is some kind of uh, mercy um, because, well, first of all, this is only an interim decision. This is only limiting uh, 
his changing, changing his house arrest to um, a no travel order. Once it comes to sentencing, we'll be back where we were. It's the, the Russian legal system is very clear. Less than 0.1% of all cases which reach uh, courts end up in, in, in non-guilty verdicts. We might have a situation where we, we, we had in, in Chechnya recently, um, where Ayub Tatir was granted a, a sentence, but it was a, a sentence in, in, a, in a very um, a reasonable condition. So the, the, it was a, a colony uh, um, settlement, which is, which is basically the, the least strict of all um, prisons. So we might see that happening later, but it would be wise not to look for a too liberal uh, um, uh, an explanation here. I think there's, there's competing clans, and uh, what we often see, I mean, essentially, certainly recently, is we talk about the, 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 the competing towers in the Kremlin. Um, as Putin, um, I mean, he, he obviously, a, I've spoken to people quite close to the elites and without naming people, they tell me that basically Putin doesn't really, uh, this isn't his level. So you will have a lot of competing things happening. And what we see at the moment is an interim decision. And it doesn't mean anything once we come to the, the the final verdict, which may be a few years away, just remind us of what the backstory is here. Can you can you tell us what exactly prosecutors are, are accusing him of having done? Well, it's it, it, it's um it's a rather fanciful tale. Um, he's one of four um, who stand accused of forming a crime syndicate um, and defrauding the Russian state of the equivalent of about two million dollars. Um, now. What this relates to is, is, is a grant which was given um, at the height of uh, Russian sort of liberal wave under the then president uh, Medvedev um, to develop experimental theatre. Um, it was actually before Sidibnikov became the, the director of um, the Gogol Centre, which is made into a, a very strong uh, contemporary theatre. Now, first of all, the, the amounts being, being talked about, I mean, they're fairly small one, as I say, two million dollars, um, and of course, and and all all the co-defendants denied the charges. So I mean, there's a question what why it's been brought. Now, when I speak to some of Sidney's friends, um, and most of them are quite reluctant to speak, but when I speak to them, they they do seem to think that the um, the issue of the kind of things that Sidney was was exploring in his theatre, so protest, uh, homosexuality. These kind of things, uh, taboo subjects within within the powers that be, caused certain elements within uh, the Kremlin to seize to seize the moment for attack. Now, that in itself is never enough, and I think this is really important. The, the number of things seems to have happened at the same time. And had Sidibnikov simply been putting on edgy theatre, and there are other people doing edgy theatre. I don't think he would have been attacked. What seems to have happened is, is a combination of A, the theatre, B, putting on, uh, t- taking, taking government money without necessarily putting the government in the regard that they expect to be held in. Uh, so you, you know, take, taking government money and putting on plays about protest in 2012, 2013. And then you hit a sweet spot where because of a certain um, moments political, um, economic even, people who have always had um, problems with Sidibnikov decide it's a good, good, good idea to attack, good time to attack. And I've also heard, you know, other theories about perhaps this is an attack on particular people within, within the administration. Maybe it's an attack on Sorkov, the once 
omnipresent and, and an all-powerful fixer, aide within, within the Kremlin. He was a, a very prominent backer of Sidibnikov. So, so there are a number of things going on at the same and it seems to have been a sweet spot that the, um, the, the investigators decided to go, go after, particularly at this moment. What do you think the takeaway for Russia's cultural community is in this case? What are, what are they learning from, from, from these proceedings? Well, I think we've we've seen I think the obvious the obvious example. There was another example quite recently with the the death of Stalin, uh, when the film was 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 basically pulled from Moscow Russia 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 cinemas. That basically, you know, culture is no longer taboo. If we look through the the two thousands and two thousand and tens, censorship went through various stages. First of all, it was purely the television media. Then it went to um, the mass media. Then it went to the more um, niche media, the the, the the media which which would you know journalists read and uh, the, the the thinking classes read, and it's the same with culture. Culture was left alone for a long time, but it's no longer it's no longer free to do as it wants. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of other things involved. Just like the, the death of Stalin, for example, there were there was a, the economics involved there. There were competing film producers, if you remember rightly. Um, here you're always going to you're always going to get mixed messages. Um, start, stop. You know, f- free, unfree. Um, and here, you know, you, you, we shouldn't expect this sort of micro thaw to not to be followed by a mega th- mega freeze because we've seen it before. You know, we've seen Pussy Riot being released and then Sid Ebnikov being charged. There are many towers inside the Kremlin, and they occasionally show themselves. Um, and we're always going to be looking at this 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 kind of hydra. Um, so it's 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 not it's not all bad news, but it certainly isn't all good news uh, when when it comes to to Russia. Ollie, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Cheers, now thanks. Eight years after Muammar Gaddafi was toppled in Libya, a Kremlin-friendly warlord, sometimes described as the new Gaddafi, has launched a military offensive to take the capital Tripoli, where the UN-backed government is based. <laughs> Khalifa Haftar, who regularly visits Russian officials in Moscow, controls the east of the vast oil-rich country and reportedly has the support of Russian military contractors. Joining us in the studio to talk about Russia's endgame in Libya is Max Suchkov, a Middle East expert at the Russia International Affairs Council and Russia editor at the Al Monitor website. Max, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us in the studio today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. First of all, can you tell us how Russian officials have reacted to Haftar's announcement of this offensive on Tripoli? Is this good news that their guy is trying to take over? Well, see, a few things here. Uh, one is the uh, foreign ministry initially took a more like cautious standing and saying, you know, we're observing the situation. Then uh, Kremlin's Spox Peskov made it as an own announcement saying Moscow does not take sides and we're just, you know, keep an eye on the situation and we hope it does not, you know, stem into new renewed bloodshed. Uh, but I think since the very beginning of the conflict, Russia has tried to position themselves as more neutral, you know, party, even though there has been this kind of label stuck to Russia Haftar relationship. Uh, the thing is, uh, you know, Russia has tried, at least at the official kind of level, tried to keep an equal distance uh, from from both Haftar and Siraj. Uh, and uh, I mean, I can see why would people associate Russia mostly with Haftar. Uh, you know, Russians been critical in supporting his army through printing banknotes uh, in the first place, and then hosting him uh, in January 2017 on uh, Admiral Kuznetsov uh, 
carrier. Uh, but then, you know, there there is still a lot of skepticism on how close Moscow should get uh, with Haftar, given he is a U.S. citizen official. You know, he's been he's had some relationship with CIA and then was ended up in Libya when after you know when this uprising started. Uh, but I think you know if we're trying to best describe how you know Russian policy vis a vis different parties is, I would use this phrase by George Orwell, who said in his Animal Farm, you know, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. So I think Russians are looking at this as you know, all players are equal, but some more equal than others. You know, and this kind of thinking stems from a kind of perception that Hafter is the one who controls, you know, two-thirds of the territory and and he can control most of Libya, if not all of Libya. So he's the one that, you know, who's, if you're staking on on someone, then these stakes are more probably secure than on the other party. Let's zoom out for a moment. Why is Russia interested in Libya in the first place? Is this just an opportunity to sort of meddle in in the European Union's backyard? Yeah, that's that's you know this as well as whether Russia is you know putting all the eggs in and in, in all in, in different baskets or solely in that of Haftar are the two questions that haunt both Russian uh, experts and uh, international experts. Uh, well, initially, you know, Russia's had long history of relationship with Libya before, you know, during the Qaddafi rule, and then had some stakes in oil uh, business. Uh, and then when when it, it all went uh, bust, basically, after the uh, Arab, Arab Spring, uh, Russia was pretty, you know, mad at, at losing this the, these positions, uh, both in the oil industry and, and and geopolitically, and then in a certain in a certain way, you know, uh, it it I think at the back of their mind there is this kind of uh, idea to have uh, the leverage over the migration processes in in Europe, not to the point of necessarily destabilizing it, but be a party that the Europeans would seriously consider negotiating with if they want to solve the migration crisis. That's one I think if we're thinking of some big ideas if there are any i would i would think of that one uh and then obviously you know russia is a not necessarily like a integral actor per se you say and you know the, the different parties and then their oil interests uh, and definitely uh some you know military contracts and some agricultural exports all of these things you know and the business interests are are there and uh I would even, you know, if we're looking at the kind of board of international players on on, on Libyan uh, kind of the front, I, I wouldn't think of Russia as the major, even though it gets the most news, because there is lo- a lot of involvement from the Emiratis, the Qataris, and the Turks, and the Saudis, and Italians and French, for that matter, too. Uh, but Russia is trying to use this kind of his, its position as quote-unquote neutral player to 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 gain more you know, than, than, than others. You, you've mentioned that, that, that Russia has tried to sort of position itself as being, well, a neutral party to the conflict. Um, but you've also mentioned that it's sort of seen as having thrown its weight behind Hiftar. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of relationship it has with the UN-backed government in, in Tripoli? Well, in, yeah, uh, it's interesting because you know initially the 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 new kind of history of of, of Russian presence there started. Uh, with the seizure of a Russian uh, ship, and uh, you know, some of a few Russian sailors were were taken hostage, and then you know there was this interesting story with the 
with Kadyrov involvement back in the time when he was using his own, you know, channels to to free the sailors, and then there was this, you know, kind of more and more engagement with with different parties. Uh, you know, definitely Russia has supported the UN efforts and the UN special envoy on on Libya, Ghassan Salame, and he's promoting, you know. Uh, political settlement bet- between the two parties. All of the all of the actors have visited Moscow on a few occasions. Uh, both Saraj and, and folks from Mistrata, another powerful player in the in the conflict. Uh, and you know that's that's more more engagement. I would say on the via diplomatic channels and, and through uh, you know parliamentary diplomacy whereas with Haftar you see a, a lot more engagement by the Russian um, defense ministry. Certainly. And we should talk about uh, Russian mercenaries who are reportedly operating uh, in Libya on Haftar's behalf. We know from, from Syria that Russian contractors sometimes have their own aims or objectives separate from that of the, the Kremlin or Russian officials. What kind of role do they have? Are they likely to muddy the waters there? It's an interesting question because, you know, all of the, and first of all, I would challenge the very idea of the Russian mercenaries being there because of the sum of the evidence, uh, because there hasn't been a lot of evidence, but some of the reports in, in, in the Western press, and, you know, most of them, if you look at the sourcing, they're referring to uh, Ukraine intelligence sources that, you know, spotted some, uh, you know, planes traveling on ships and things like this. And then you may say, you know, because of the conflict with with Ukraine, these sources are biased. But I would think that the Russian mercenaries are there because of some of the uh, foreign policy patterns that we've seen in Syria, as you mentioned, and and abroad in the Middle East. Uh, Because, you know, this is a relatively cheap and definitely cheap from a political standpoint tool to uh, have, you know, your... Uh, gain your goals achieved, uh, so there they yeah they, they, they have been some reports on, on on them. I would think their engagement is limited. I, I don't think they are engaged in in active combat now, but rather probably in uh, shielding some of the oil uh, you know stations or fields that either already, you know, belong to Rosneft and others or potentially will will be theirs if, you know, the deals are eventually go through. Russia is seen as an emergent player in the the Middle East more broadly and North Africa, of course. How does Russia's role uh, in Libya play into that? And how does its intervention there compare to, say, Syria? Yeah, it's a very, very good question, and and and, and uh, I think you know Syria is definitely a number one. It's it's a poster child for what Moscow sees its success in the Middle East, and I, arguably, I would think poster child of success of all the Russian diplomacy. Because if you look at the other d- directions, uh, Russian foreign policy hasn't been that successful when it comes either to relations with the U.S. or Europe or uh, some other. Uh, but but that 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 is important, and uh, many people are looking at Syria as sort of a template for how Russia will move in, in, in other countries, and and I think it, it, to a large degree it is accurate because, you know, this idea of positioning yourself as a neutral and uh, selling this image to the parties, regardless of your own engagement with each of the parties, which is you know pretty much in Syria, Russia has been fighting 
for Assad, and then now it is kind of repositioned itself as a mediator be- be- between the government and opposition forces, and the opposition gets it because other you know uh, actors have exposed their bias in a more kind of one-sided way than, than, than Russia, given Iran or Turkey. And it's pretty much the case in Libya. You know, you see the backers for uh, Haftar, the Emiratis, and then now the Saudis and Egyptians, and they haven't really made, made many overtures to the other party, whereas the Russians did. And I think th- this is kind of a, 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 big, a big element of it. Whether uh, the second kind of, you know, uh, litmus test, how committed uh, Russia would be to the use of force, to the one that it exposed in Syria. I think uh, given, you know, its lesser significance for Russian foreign policy for a number of reasons than Syria, Moscow will try to dodge that scenario. And I think right now, even though we're saying here, you know, it is kind of uh, backing up Hiftar politically or shielding him from, from international pressure, uh, it is still unwilling to use some some force to to support his his offensive. How do we see this playing out? Does Russia have an insurance policy against its uh, investment in 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 Haftar? What if it goes pear shaped? Yeah, it's uh, it, well the thing. See, that's exactly why uh, you know Haftar himself called uh, Deputy Foreign Minister and Putin's envoy for the Middle East, uh, Mikhail Bogdanov. Uh, the next day, he started the offensive and kind of briefed Moscow on on what he's doing and things like this. He's interesting in that he, I think, he mastered. Uh, the narrative that he thinks will uh, fly well with Moscow, meaning, you know, Russia has been uh, adamant advocate for uh, fighting international terrorism, and he's saying this is exa- exactly what I'm doing, fighting international terrorism, even though it, he definitely, you know, within his uh, quote-unquote army, there are different actors, including some extremist forces. Uh, he also th- says, you know, I, you're all for inclusive intra-Libyan dialogue, I'm fighting against the guys who are undermining this dialogue. And this is, you know, this kind of rhetoric get picks up by, gets picked up by um, the foreign ministry. And then they're saying, you know, these guys trying to um, fight those who are against the peace. So even though, even, you know, if, if Haftar offensive fails, I think Russia will still be in a in a better position than other other uh, outside parties because of this, you know, kind of insurance policy of trying to secure your 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 bets, and uh, I think it has more maneuver in this uh, than you know Emiratis, the Saudis, or the Europeans, and uh, we we don't really know what the the U.S. position and is is the U.S. military. Uh, withdrew from from the active combat zone. So we'll see. Max, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great, great talking to you. Cheers. And to finish off, Leonid Slutsky, perhaps Russia's best-known football coach, is making a name for himself in the music business. In a post-match interview last weekend in the Netherlands, where Slutsky coaches, he railed against Sardar Gozubuk for being the worst referee ever and for having a bias against fat and bald people. So, obviously, someone had to set it to a beat. Yes, because he's arrogant. He's too selfish. He's, he thinks he's God. And all- the video, which has since gone viral, shows Slutsky slamming the Dutch referee, calling him very arrogant, very selfish, and claiming that Gozebuk thinks he's God. Whether or not you think the comments are professional or appropriate, it's fair to say that Slutsky's got flow. 
that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website to read more about Tsarebnikov, Libya, and other oddities from Russia. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Pyotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. Thank you.